CD 6. There were people hanging around out there, in little groups of three or four, talking among themselves and occasionally turning to look at the watch house. Vimes sat down on the steps and took a sip of his cocoa. He might as well have dropped his britches. The groups opened up and became an audience. No man drinking a non-alcoholic chocolate beverage had ever been the centre of so much attention. He'd been right. A closed door is an incitement to bravery. A man drinking from a mug under a light and apparently enjoying the cool night air is an incitement to pause. "'We're breaking curfew, you know,' said a young man with a quick dart-forward, dart-back movement. "'Is that right?' said Vimes. "'Are you going to arrest us, then?' "'Not me,' said Vimes cheerfully. "'I'm on me break.' "'Yeah,' said the man. He pointed to Colon and Waddy. "'Are they on their break, too?' "'They are now.' Vimes half-turned. "'Bruise up, lads. Off you go. No, no need to run. There's enough for everyone. And come back out when you've got it.' When the sound of pounding boots had died away, Vimes turned back and smiled at the group again. "'So when do you come off your break?' said the man. Vimes paid him some extra attention. The stance was a giveaway. He was ready to fight, even though he didn't look like a fighter. If this were a bar room, the bartender would be taking the more expensive bottles off the shelf, because amateurs like that tended to spread the glass around. Ah, yes. And now he could see why the words bar room had occurred to him. There was a bottle sticking out of the man's pocket. He'd been drinking his defiance. Oh, around Thursday, I reckon, said Vimes, eyeing the bottle. There was laughter from somewhere in the growing crowd. Why Thursday? said the drinker. Got me day off on Thursday. There were a few more laughs this time. When the tension is drawing out, it doesn't take much to snap it. "'I demand you arrest me,' said the drinker. "'Come on, try it.' "'You're not drunk enough,' said Vimes. "'I should go home and sleep it off if I was you.' The man's hand grasped the neck of the bottle. "'Here it comes,' thought Vimes. By the look of him, the man had one chance in five. Fortunately, the crowd wasn't too big yet. What you didn't need at a time like this was people at the back, craning to see and asking what was going on. And the lit-up watch-house was fully illuminating the lit-up man.' "'Friend, if you take my advice, you'll not consider that,' said Vimes. He took another sip of his cocoa. It was only lukewarm now, but along with the cigar it meant that both his hands were occupied. That was important. He wasn't holding a weapon. No one could say afterwards that he had a weapon. "'I'm no friend to you people,' snapped the man, and smashed the bottle on the wall by the steps. The glass tinkled to the ground. Vimes watched the man's face, watched the expression change from drink-fuelled anger to agonising pain, watched the mouth open. The man swayed. Blood began to ooze from somewhere between his fingers, and a low, thin, animal sound escaped from between his teeth. That was the tableau, under the light. Vimes sitting down with his hands full, the bleeding man several feet away. No fight, no one had touched anyone, he knew the way rumour worked and he wanted this picture to fix itself in people's minds. There was even ash still on the cigar. He stayed very still for a few seconds, and then stood up, all concerned. "'Come on, won't you help me, will you?' he said, tugging off his breastplate and the chainmail shirt underneath it. He grabbed his shirt sleeve and tore off a long strip. A couple of men, jerked into action by the voice of command, steadied the man who was dripping blood. One of them reached for the hand. "'Leave it,' Vimes commanded, tightening the strip of sleeve around the man's unresisting wrist. "'He's got a handful of broken glass.' "'Lay him down as gently as you can before he falls over, "'but don't touch nothing until I've got this tourniquet on. "'Sam, go into the stable and pinch Marilyn's blanket for the boy. "'Anyone here know Dr Lorne? Speak up!' "'Someone among the awed bystanders volunteered that they did "'and was sent running for him.' 
Vimes was aware of the circle watching him. A lot of the watchmen were peering around the doorway now. "'Saw this happen once,' he said aloud, and added mentally, in ten years' time. "'It was in a bar fight. Man grabbed a bottle, didn't know how to smash it. Ended up with a handful of shards, and the other guy reached down and squeezed.' There was a satisfying groan from the crowd. "'Anyone know who this man is?' he added. "'Come on, someone must.' A voice in the crowd volunteered that the man could well be Joss Gappy, an apprentice shoemaker from New Cobblers. "'Let's hope we can save his hand, then,' said Vimes. "'I need a new pair of boots.' It wasn't funny at all, but it got another of those laughs, the ones people laugh out of sheer frightened nervousness. Then the crowd parted as Lorne came through. "'Ah,' he said, kneeling down by Gappy, "'you know, I don't know why I own a bed. Trainee bottle fighter.' "'Yeah.' "'Looks like you've done the right things, but I need light and a table,' said Lorne. "'Can your men take him into the watch-house?' Vimes had hoped it wouldn't come to that. "'Oh, well, you had to make the best of it.' He pointed randomly at figures in the crowd. "'You and you, and you and you, and you too, lady,' he said. "'You can help Fred and Waddy take this young man inside, OK? "'And you're to stop with him, and we'll leave the doors open, right? "'All you lot out here will know what's going on. "'We've got no secrets here. Everyone understand?' "'Yeah, but you're a copper,' a voice began." Vimes darted forward and hauled a frightened young man out of the crowd by his shirt. "'Yeah, I am,' he said. "'And see that lad over there? He's a copper too. His name's Sam Vimes. He lives in Cockbill Street with his mum. And that's Fred Colon, just got married, got a couple of rooms in Old Cobblers. And Exhibit C here is Waddy. Everyone round here knows Waddy. Billy Wiglet there, he was born in this street. Have I asked you your name?' Uh, "'No,' the man mumbled. "'That's cos I don't care who you are,' said Vimes, letting the man go and looking round at the crowd.' Listen to me, all of you. My name's John Keel. No one gets taken into this watch house without me knowing why. You're all here as witnesses. Those of you I've pointed out, you come on inside to see fair play all round. Do the rest of you want to hang around to see what happens to Gappy? Fine. I'll get Snouty to bring you out some cocoa. Or you can go home. It's a cold night. You ought to be in your beds. I know I'd like to be in mine. And yes, we do know about Dolly Sisters and we don't like it any more than you do. And we've heard about Dimwell Street, and we don't like that either. And that's all I've got to say tonight. Now, anyone who still wants to take a swing at a copper can step right up if they want to. I've got my uniform off. We'll have a go, here and now, fair and square, in front of everyone. Anyone? Something brushed his shoulder and clattered onto the watch house steps. Then there was the sound of slipping tiles from a roof on the other side, and a man fell off the roof and into the pool of light. There were gasps from the crowd, and one or two short screams. "'Looks like you've got a volunteer,' said someone. There was the horrible, nervous sniggering again. The crowd parted to let Vimes view the sudden arrival. The man was dead. If he hadn't been when he fell off the roof, he was after he hit the ground, because no neck normally looked like that. A crossbow had fallen down with him. Vimes remembered the draught across his shoulder and went back to the watch-house steps. It didn't take long to find the arrow, which had broken into several pieces. "'Anyone know this man?' he said. The crowd, even those members of it who hadn't been able to get a good look at the fallen bowman, indicated definite ignorance. Vimes went through the man's pockets. Every single one was empty, which was all the evidence of identification he needed. "'Looks like it's going to be a long night,' he said, signalling Colong to take this body inside too. "'I've got to get on with my work, ladies and gentlemen. If anyone wants to stay, and frankly I'll be obliged if you do, I'll send some lads out to build a fire. Thank you for your patience.' He picked up his mail and breastplate and went back inside. "'What are they doing?' he said to Sam, without turning round. "'Some of them are wandering off, but most of them are standing around, Sarge,' said Sam, peering around the door. "'Sarge? 
one of them shot at you. Really? Who says the man on the roof was one of them? That's an expensive bow, and he didn't have anything in his pockets. Nothing. Not so much as a used anky. Very odd, Sarge, said Sam loyally. Especially since I was expecting a piece of paper saying something like, I am definitely a member of the revolutionary cadre, trust me on this, said Vimes, looking carefully at the corpse. Yeah, that'd tell us he was a revolutionary all right, said Sam. Vimes sighed and stared at the wall a moment. Then he said, Anyone notice anything about his bow? It's the new Bolsover A7, said Fred Colon. Not a bad bow, Sarge. Not an assassin's weapon, though. That's true, said Vimes, and twisted the dead man's head so that they could see the tip of the little metal dart behind the ear. But this is... Fred, you know everyone. Where can I get some ginger beer at this time of night? Ginger beer, Sarge? Yes, Fred. Why do... Colon began. Don't ask, Fred. Just get half a dozen bottles, all right? Vimes turned to the desk on which, surrounded by a fascinated crowd, Dr Lorne was at work on the stricken gappy. "'How's it going?' said Vimes, pushing through. "'Slower than it'd go if people got out of the damn light,' said Lorne, carefully moving his tweezers to a mug by Gappy's hand and dropping a bloody fragment of glass therein. "'I've seen worse on a Friday night. He'll keep the use of his fingers if that's what you want to know. He just won't be making any shoes for a while. Well done.' There was general crowd approval. Vimes looked around at the people and the coppers. There were one or two muted conversations going on. He heard phrases like, bad business, and they'd say that, above the general noise. He'd played the cards well enough. Most of the lads here lived within a street or two. It was one thing to have a go at faceless bastards in uniform, but quite another to throw stones at old Fred Colon, or old Waddy, or old Billy Wiglet, who you'd known since you were two years old and played dead rat conkers with in the gutter. Lorne put the tweezers down and pinched the bridge of his nose. "'That's it,' he said wearily. "'A bit of stitching and he'll be fine.' "'And there's some others I need you to take a look at,' said Vimes. "'You know, that comes as no surprise,' said the doctor. "'One's got a lot of holes in his feet, one dropped through the privy roof and has got a twisted leg, and one's dead.' "'I don't think I can do much about the dead one,' said the doctor. "'How do you know he's dead? I realise I may regret asking that question.' He's got a broken neck from falling off a roof, and I reckon he fell off because he got a steel crossbow bolt in his brain. Ah, that sounds like dead if you want my medical opinion. Did you do it? No. Well, you're a busy man, Sergeant. You can't be everywhere. The doctor's face cracked into a grin when he saw Vimes go red, and he walked over to the corpse. Yes, I'd say that life is definitely extinct, he said. And? I want you to write that down, please, on paper with official-sounding words like contusion and abrasions. I want you to write that down, and I want you to write down what time you found he was dead. And then, if you don't mind, two lads will take you down to look at the other two, and after you treated them, thank you, I'd like you to sign another piece of paper saying you did, and I called you in. Two copies of everything, please. All right. Dare I ask why? I don't want anyone to say I did it. Why should anyone say that? You told me he fell off a roof. These are suspicious times, Doctor. Ah, here's Fred. Any luck? Corporal Colon was carrying a box. He put it down on the desk with a grunt. Old Mrs Arbiter didn't like being knocked up in the middle of the night, he announced. I had to give her a dollar. Vimes didn't dare look at Lorne's face. Really, he said as innocently as possible. And you got the ginger beer? Six paints of her best stuff, said Colon. There's three pence back on the bottles, by the way, and, uh, he shuffled uneasily, 
Uh, I heard they set fire to the watch house at Dolly's sister's, Sarge. It's very bad up at Knapp Hill, too. And uh, the Chitlin Street house got all its windows broke. And up at the Least Gate house, some of the lads went out to stop kids throwing stones. And uh, one of them drew his sword, Sarge. And he'll probably live, Sarge. Dr Lorne looked about him at the crowded office where people were still talking. Snouty was going round with a tray of cocoa. Out in the street, some of the watchmen were standing around a makeshift fire with the remnants of the crowd. "'Well, I must say I'm impressed,' he said. "'Sounds like you're the only watch house not under siege tonight. I don't want to know how you did it.' "'Luck played a part,' said Vimes. "'And I've got three men who carry no personal identification whatsoever in the cells, and another anonymous would-be assassin who has been assassinated.' "'Quite a problem.' said Lorne. Now me, I just have to deal with simple mysteries like what the rash means. I intend to solve mine quite quickly, said Vimes. The assassin moved quietly from roof to roof until he was run away from the excitement around the watch house. His movements could be called cat-like, except that he did not stop to spray urine up against things. Eventually, he reached one of the upper world's many hidden places where several thickets of chimneys made a little sheltered space, invisible from the ground and from most of the surrounding roofscape. He didn't enter it immediately, but circled it for a while, moving with absolute silence from one vantage point to another. What would have intrigued a watcher who knew the ways of Ankh-Morpork's guild of assassins was how invisible this one was. When he moved, you saw movement. When he stopped... He wasn't there. Magic would have been suspected, and, in an oblique way, the watch would have been right. Ninety percent of most magic merely consists of knowing one extra fact. At last, the figure appeared satisfied and dropped into the space. He picked up a bag from its nesting place between the smoking pots, and there was some faint swishing and heavier breathing that suggested clothes were being changed. After a minute or so, he emerged from the hidden niche, and now, somehow, he was visible. Hard to see, yes, one shadow among others, but nevertheless there in a way that he had not been before when he'd been as visible as the breeze. He dropped lightly onto a lean-to roof and thence to the ground where he stepped into a handy shadow. Then there was a further transformation. It was done quite easily. The evil little crossbow was disassembled and slipped into the pockets of a clink-free velvet bag, the soft leather slippers were exchanged for a pair of heavier boots that had been stashed in the shadow, and the black hood was pushed back. He walked lightly round the corner and waited a few minutes. A coach came along, its torches trailing flame. It slowed briefly and its door opened and shut. The assassin settled back in his seat as the coach picked up speed again. There was a very faint lamp in the carriage. Its glow revealed a female figure relaxing in the shadows opposite. As the coach passed a torch there was a suggestion of lilac silk. "'You've missed a bit,' said the figure. It produced a lilac-coloured handkerchief and held it in front of the young man's face. "'Spit!' came the command. Reluctantly, he did so. A hand wiped his cheek and then held the cloth up to light. "'Dark green,' said the woman. "'How strange! I understand, Havelock, that you scored zero in your examination for stealthy movement.' "'May I ask how you found that out, madam?' "'Oh, one hears things.' "'Madam,' said lightly, "'one just has to hold money up to one's ear.' "'Well, it was true,' said the assassin. "'And why was this?' "'The examiner thought I'd used trickery, madam.' "'And did you?' "'Of course. I thought that was the idea.' "'And you never attended his lessons,' he said. 
Oh, I did. Religiously. He says he never saw you at any of them. Havelock smiled. And your point, madam, is? Madam laughed. Will you take some champagne? There was the sound of a bottle moving in an ice bucket. Thank you, madam, but no. As you wish. I shall. And now, a report, please. I can't believe what I saw. I thought he was a thug, and he is a thug. You can see his muscles thinking for him. But he overrules them moment by moment. I think I saw a genius at work, but what? He's just a sergeant, madam. Don't underestimate him on that account. It is a very useful rank for the right man. The optimum balance of power and responsibility. Incidentally, they say he can read the street through the soles of his boots and keeps them very thin for that purpose. Hmm. There are plenty of different surfaces, that's true, but... You're always so solemn about these things, Havelock. Not at all like your late father. Think mythologically. He can read the street. He can hear its voice, take its temperature, read its mind. It talks to him through his boots. Policemen are just as superstitious as other people. Every other watch-house was attacked tonight. Oh, Swing's people egged it on, but it was malice and stupidity that did most damage. But not in Treacle-Mine Road. No. Keel opened the doors and let the street inside. I wish I knew more about him. I'm told that in Pseudopolis he was considered to be slow, thoughtful, sensible. He certainly seems to have bloomed here. I inhumed a man who attempted to nip him in the bud. Really? That doesn't sound like swing. How much do I owe you? The young man called Havelock gave a shrug. Call it a dollar, he said. That's very cheap. He wasn't worth more. I should warn you, though. Soon you may want me to deal with Keel. Surely someone like him wouldn't side with people like Winder and Swing? He's a side all by himself. He is a complication. You may think it best if he ceased to complicate. The rattling of the coach underlined the silence this remark caused. It was moving through a richer part of the city now, where there was more light, and the curfew, being for poorer people, was less rigorously observed. The figure opposite the assassin stroked the cat on her lap. No. He'll serve some purpose, said Madame. Everyone is telling me about Keel. In a world where we all move in curves, he proceeds in a straight line. And going straight in a world of curves makes things happen. She stroked the cat. It yowled softly. It was ginger and had an expression of astonishing smugness, although periodically it scratched at its collar. On a different subject, she said, what was that business with the book? I did not like to take too much notice. Oh, it was an extremely rare volume I was able to track down on the nature of concealment. That stupid hulk of a boy burned it. Yes, that was a piece of luck. I was afraid he might try to read it, although... Havelock smiled wanly. Someone would have had to help him with the longer words. Was it valuable? Priceless. Especially now it has been destroyed. Ah. It contained information of value, possibly involving the colour dark green. Will you tell me? I could tell you. Havelock smiled again. But then I would have to find someone to pay me to kill you. Then don't tell me. "'But I do think Dog Botherer is an unpleasant nickname.' 
"'When your name is Veterinary, madam, "'you're happy enough if it's merely dog-botherer. "'Can you drop me off a little way from the guild, please? "'I'll go in via the roof. "'I have a tiger to attend to before I go up to, you know.' "'A tiger! How exciting!' she stroked the cat again. "'You'll find your way in yet?' "'Veterinary shrugged. "'I've known my way for years, madam, "'but now he has half a regiment around the palace.' Four or five guards on each door with irregular patrols and spot checks. I can't get through them. Only let me get inside, please, and the men inside are no problem. The cat pawed at its collar. Is it possible that he is allergic to diamonds? said madame. She held up the cat. Is you allergic to diamonds, then? Havelock sighed, but inwardly, because he respected his aunt. He just wished she was a bit more sensible about cats. He felt instinctively that if you were going to fondle a cat while discussing matters of intrigue, then it should be a long-haired white one. It shouldn't be an elderly street tom with regular bouts of flatulence. "'What about the sergeant?' he said, shifting along the seat as politely as possible. The lady, all in lilac, lowered the cat gently onto the seat. There was a distressing smell. "'I think I should meet Mr. Keel as soon as possible.' she said. Perhaps he can be harnessed. The party is tomorrow night. Um, do you mind opening the window? A little later that night, Downey was walking unsteadily back to his study after a convivial time in the prefect's common room, when he noticed that a torch had gone out. With a swiftness that might have surprised someone who saw no further than his flushed face and unsteady walk, he pulled out a dagger and scanned the corridor. He glanced up at the ceiling, too. There were grey shadows everywhere, but nothing more than that. Sometimes torches did go out all by themselves. He stepped forward. When he woke up in his bed next morning, he put the headache down to some bad brandy. And some skag had painted orange and black stripes on his face. It started to rain again. Vimes liked the rain. Street crime went down when it rained. People stayed indoors. Some of the best nights of his career had been rainy, when he'd stood in the shadows in the lee of some building, head tucked in so that there was barely anything showing between his helmet and his collar, and listened to the silvery rustle of the rain. Once he'd been standing so quietly, so withdrawn, so not there, that a fleeing robber who'd evaded his pursuers had leaned against him to catch his breath. And when Vimes put his arms around him and whispered, Gotcha! into his ear, the man had apparently done in his trousers what his dear mother, some forty years before, had very patiently taught him not to do. The people had gone home. The sewn-up gappy had been escorted to Old Cobblers, where Fred Colon had patiently explained events to the man's parents, with his round red face radiating honesty. Lorne was possibly getting some use out of his bed. And the rain gurgled in the downpipes and gushed from the gargoyles, and swirled in the gutters and deadened all sound. Useful stuff, Rain. Vimes picked up the bottle of Mrs. Arbiter's best ginger beer. He remembered it. It was as gassy as hell and therefore hugely popular. A young boy could, with encouragement and training, eventually manage to belch the whole first verse of the national anthem after just one swig. This is an important social attribute when you're eight years old. He'd chosen Colon and Waddy for this task. He wasn't going to involve young Sam... It wasn't that what he was planning was illegal as such. It was just that it had the same colour and smell as something illegal, and Vimes didn't want to have to explain. 
The cells were old, much older than the building above them. The iron cages were fairly new and didn't take up all the space. There were other cellars beyond an arch containing nothing more than rats and rubbish, but importantly, they couldn't be seen from the cages. Vimes got the men to carry the dead bowmen through. Nothing wrong with that. It was the middle of the night. Filthy weather, no sense in waking up the people at the mortuary when there was a nice cold cellar. He watched through the spy hole in the door as the body was taken past the cells. It caused a certain stir, especially in the first man he'd brought in. The other two had the look of men who'd seen a lot of bad stuff in the name of making money. If they were hired to steal or murder or be a copper, it was all the same to them, and they'd learned not to react too readily to deaths that were not their own. The first man, though, was getting nervous. Vimes had nicknamed him Ferret. He was the best dressed of the three, all in black. The dagger had been expensive, and, Vimes noticed, he had a silver death's head ring on one finger. The other two had dressed nondescript, and their weapons had been workmanlike, nothing much to look at but well used. No real assassin would wear jewellery at work. It was dangerous, and it shone. But Ferret wanted to be a big man. He probably checked himself in the mirror before he went out to make sure he looked cool. He was the sort of little twerp that got a kick out of showing his dagger to women in bars. Ferret, in short, had big dreams. Ferret had an imagination. Well, that was fine. The watchman returned and picked up the packages Vimes had prepared. Remember, we do it fast, he said. They're worried, they're tired, no one's come for them, and they've just seen a very dead colleague. We don't want to give the first two time to think, understand? They nodded. And we'll leave the little one until last. I want him to have lots of time. Ferret was considering his prospects. Regrettably, this didn't take long. He'd already had a row with the other two, some rescue team they'd been. They weren't even dressed right, but the brown jobs hadn't done thing as per spec. Everyone knew they backed away. They weren't supposed to fight back or show any kind of intelligence. They, The main cell door was flung back. "'It's ginger beer time!' roared someone. And a watchman ran through with a box of bottles, disappeared into the rooms beyond. There wasn't much light in here. Ferret cowered against the wall and saw two watchmen unlock the cell next door, drag the shackled occupants upright and out into the corridor, and then hustle him round the corner. The voices had a slight echo. "'Hold him down, mind his legs.' "'Right, let's have the bottle. Give it a proper shake, otherwise it won't work.' "'Okay, friend, anything you want to tell us? Your name?' "'No. Well, it's like this. Right now, we don't care a whole lot if you talk or not.' There was a loud pop, a hiss, and then a scream, an explosion of agony. After it had died away, the trembling ferret heard someone say, "'Quick, get the next one before the captain catches us.' He cringed back as two watchmen rushed into the next cell, dragged out the struggling prisoner and hustled him into the darkness. "'All right.' One chance. Are you going to talk? Yes? No? Too late. Once again the pop. Once again the hiss. Once again the scream. It was louder and longer this time, and ended in a kind of bubbling sound. Ferret crouched against the wall, fingers in his mouth. Around the corner, sitting in the light of one lantern, Colon nudged Vimes, wrinkled his nose and pointed down. There was a gully that ran between all the cells as a primitive sop to hygiene, now, a thin trickle was inching its way along it. Ferret was nervous. Gotcha, thought Vimes. But a good imagination needs a little more time. He leaned forward, and the other two moved closer expectantly. So, he said in a low whisper, have you boys had your holidays yet? After a few minutes of very small talk, he stood up, 
strode round the last occupied cell, unlocked the door and grabbed Ferret, who was trying to squeeze into a corner. "'No! Please! I'll tell you whatever you want to know!' the man yelled. "'Really?' said Vimes. "'What's the orbital velocity of the moon?' "'What?' "'Oh, you'd like something simpler,' said Vimes, dragging the man out of the cell. "'Fred, Waddy, he wants to talk. Bring a notebook.' It took half an hour. Fred Colon wasn't a fast writer, and when the painful sound of his efforts concluded with the stab of his last full stop, Vimes said, OK, sir, and now you write down at the end, I, Gerald Leastways, currently staying at the Young Men's Pagan Association, am making this statement of my own free will and not under duress, and then you sign it or else. Got it? Yes, sir. The initials GL had been inscribed on the dagger. Vimes believed them. He'd met plenty of Leastwayses in his career, and they tended to spill their guts at the mere thought of spilling their guts. And when they did, you got everything. Anyone who'd seen the ginger beer trick used on someone else would confess to anything. "'Well, now,' he said cheerfully, standing up, "'thank you for your cooperation. Want to lift to Cable Street?' Ferret's expression, if not his mouth, said, "'Huh?' "'We've got to drop off your friends,' Vimes went on, raising his voice slightly. "Toddsy and Muffer. We'll drop the dead one off at the mortuary. Just a bit of paperwork for you.' He nodded at Colon. "'One copy of your helpful statement, one certificate of death from the pox doctor for the late mystery man, and rest assured we'll try to track down his murderer.' A chitty from Mossy about the ointment he put on Muffer's feet. Oh, and a receipt for six bottles of ginger beer. He put a hand on Ferret's shoulder and gently walked him round into the next cellar, where Toddsy and Muffer were sitting gagged, bound and livid with rage. On a table nearby was a box containing six flagons of ginger beer. The corks were heavily wired down. Ferret stared at Vimes, who inserted a finger in his mouth, blew up his cheeks and flicked out the finger with a loud pop. Waddy hissed between his teeth. Fred Colon opened his mouth, but Vimes clamped his hand over it. No, don't, he said. Funny thing, Gerald, but Fred here just screams out loud at times for no reason at all. You tricked me, Ferret wailed. Vimes patted him on the shoulder. Tricked, he growled. How so, Gerald? You made me think you were doing a ginger beer trick. Ginger beer trick, said Vimes, his brow wrinkling. "'What's that?' "'You know. You brought the stuff down here.' "'We don't drink alcohol on duty, Gerald,' said Vimes severely. "'What's wrong with a little ginger beer?' "'We don't know any tricks with the stuff, Gerald. What tricks do you know? "'Seen any good tricks lately, Gerald? Do tell.' At last it dawned on Ferret that he should stop talking. It was about half an hour too late.' The expressions on what could be seen of the faces of Toddsy and Muffer suggested that they wanted a very personal word with him. "'I demand protective custody,' he managed. "'Just when I'm letting you go, Gerald,' said Vimes. "'As you said in your statement, what was it, Fred? "'Something about just obeying orders? "'All that stuff about mixing with the mobs "'and throwing things at coppers and soldiers? "'You didn't want to do that, I know.' You didn't like being round in Cable Street watching people being beaten up and being told what to confess to, because it's plain to me that you're not that sort. You're small fry. I understand that. I say we'll call it quits. How about you? Please, I'll tell you all I know, Ferret squeaked. You mean you haven't? Vimes roared. He spun around and grabbed a bottle. Yes, no, I, I mean, I mean, if, if I sit quiet, I'm sure I'll remember some more. Vimes held his gaze for a moment and then dropped the bottle back in the crate. "'All right,' he said. "'It'll be a dollar a day, meals extra.' "'Right you are, sir.' 
Vimes watched Ferret scuttle back into his cell and shut the door behind him. Then he turned to Fred and Waddy. Go and wake up Marilyn, he said. Let's deliver the other three. The rain was falling steadily and a thin mist filled Cable Street. The wagon came out of nowhere. Fred had urged Marilyn into something approaching a canter down the street, and when the horse came round the corner she was trying to keep ahead of the heavy rumbling cart behind. As the hurry-up wagon passed the station, the rear door was flung open and two bodies were tumbled out onto the wet cobbles. The guards rushed forward. One or two of them fired after the retreating cart, but the arrows clattered harmlessly off the black iron strips. The other men approached the tied-up bodies with some care. There were groans, punctuated by swear words, and, pinned to one man, some paperwork. They read the note. They did not laugh. Vimes unharnessed the old horse, rubbed her down, and checked on her feed. Perhaps it was his imagination, but the feed bin seemed fuller than two days ago. Guilty consciences were at work, maybe. Then he walked out into the cool night air. The lights were on in the watch-house. It was a beacon, now that the street lamps had been doused. Beyond the walls of the yard the real night had closed in, the old night with its tendrils of fog and crawling shadows. He relaxed and wore it like an overcoat. A shadow near the gate was deeper than it ought to be. He felt for his cigar case again, cursed and pulled a cigar out of his shirt sleeve. He cupped his hands when he lit it, but kept his eyes tightly shut to hold the night vision. Then he looked up and blew a smoke ring. Yes, everyone thought Black didn't show up at night. They were wrong. He walked over to shut the gate and then pulled out his sword in one fluid movement. Sadie raised her head, revealing a pale oval of a face in the depths of her bonnet. "'Good morning, kind sir,' she said. "'Good morning, Sadie,' said Vimes wearily. "'To what do I owe this pleasure?' "'Madam wants to see you, kind sir. "'If you mean Rosie, I've been a bit busy,' dots his handbag, hit him on the back of the head. "'Madam doesn't like waiting, dearie,' were the last words he heard before night closed in all the way. The aunts were experts. Probably not even Mossy Lorne could turn someone off with such precision. Vimes drifted awake. He was in an armchair. It was extremely comfortable, and someone was shaking him. It was Sandra, the real seamstress. She stared at him and said, "'He looks okay. Then she stepped back, sat down in another chair, and aimed a crossbow at him. "'You know,' said Vimes, it really was a comfortable chair and reminded him of the softness that had gone from his life in the past few days. It hadn't all been bad. "'If someone wants to talk to me, they only have to bloody well ask!' Sadie said you'd only be out for ten minutes, but then you started to snore, so we thought we'd let you sleep for a while,' said Rosie Palm, stepping into view. She was wearing a red off-the-shoulder evening dress, an impressively large wig, and quite a lot of jewellery. "'Yeah, it costs a lot of money to look as cheap as this, Sergeant,' she said, catching his expression. "'I can't stop. I must go and talk to people. "'Now, if you—' "'Snapcase has promised you ladies that you'll be allowed to form a guild, right?' said Vimes. "'It was another cheating move, but he was fed up with waking up in odd places. "'Yes, I thought so. And you believe him? It's not going to happen. "'When he's the patrician, he'll look right through you.' "'He'll end up looking through everything,' he added to himself. "'Mad Lord Snapcase.' Just another window, but with fancier waistcoats and more chins. Same cronyism, same piggy ways, same stupid arrogance. One more leech in a line of leeches that would make veterinary seem like a breath of clean air. <laughs> veterinary, yes. 
He'd be around here somewhere too, no doubt, learning that little expression he had which never, ever gave you a clue what he was thinking. But he'll be the one to give you the guild you want so much. "'Don't expect anything from Snapcase,' he said aloud. "'Remember, there were people who thought Winder was the future too.' He derived some minor pleasure from seeing the look on Rosie Palm's face. At last she said, "'Give him a drink, Sandra. If he moves, shoot an eye out. I'll let Madam know.' "'Do you expect me to believe that she'll fire that?' said Vimes. "'Sandra has a very useful streak of belligerence,' said Rosie. "'A gentleman was being impolite yesterday, and she came running in, and you'll be surprised at what she did with her mushroom.' Vimes eyed the crossbow. The girl had a very steady hand. "'I don't think I quite under—' he began. "'It's a wooden thing to make it easier to darn socks,' said Sandra. "'I hit him behind the ear with it.' Vimes gave her a blank look for a while and then said, "'Fine, fine. I'm sitting very still, believe me.' "'Good,' said Rosie. She swept out, and it was a real sweep, the dress brushing the ground. There were big, expensive double doors. When she opened them, the noise of a meeting filled the room. There was conversation, the smell of cigar smoke and alcohol, and a voice said, "'To change the dominant episteme!' before the doors breathed shut. Vimes stayed seated. He was getting attached to the chair, and on current showing someone was likely to hit him again soon. Sandra, still holding the bow, placed a very large glass of whisky beside him. "'You know,' he said, "'in times to come people will wonder how all those weapons got smuggled round the city.' "'I'm sure I don't know what you're talking about.' "'And it's because the lads in the watch never bother about the seamstresses, curfew or no curfew,' said Vimes, staring at the whisky. "'Or posh coaches,' he added. "'A watchman can get into real trouble if he tries that. "'He could smell the stuff from here. "'It was the good stuff from the mountains, not the local rubbish.' "'You didn't tell anyone about the basket,' said Sandra, "'or hand us over to the unmentionables. Are you one of us?' "'I doubt it. But you don't know who we are.' "'I still doubt it.' and then he was aware of the doors opening and shutting, and the rustle of a long dress. "'Sergeant Keel, I've heard so much about you. Please leave us, Sandra. I'm sure the good sergeant can be trusted with her lady.' Madame was only a little shorter than Vimes. Could be from Genoa, he thought, or spent a lot of time there. Trace of it in the accent. Brown eyes, brown hair. But a woman's hair could be any colour tomorrow. And a purple dress that looked more expensive than most.' and an expression that said quite clearly that the owner knew what was going to happen and was going along with things just to make sure. "'Don't forget the intricately painted fingernails,' she said. "'But if you're trying to guess my weight, don't expect to get any help from me. You can call me madam.' She sat down in a chair opposite him, put her hands together and stared at him over the top of them. "'Who are you working for?' she said. "'I'm an officer of the City Watch,' said Vimes. "'Brought here under duress. Madam.' The woman waved her hand. "'You're free to go whenever you wish.' "'It's a comfy chair,' said Vimes. He was damned if he'd be dismissed. "'Are you really from Genoa? Are you really from Pseudopolis?' Madame smiled at him. "'I find, personally, that it pays never to be from somewhere close at hand. It makes life so much easier. But I have spent a lot of time in Genoa, where I have business interests,' she smiled at him. "'And now you're thinking old seamstress, no doubt.' "'Actually, I was thinking bespoke tailoring,' said Vimes, and she burst out laughing. "'But mostly,' he added, "'I was thinking revolutionary.' "'Continue, Sergeant,' Madame stood up. 
Do you mind if I have some champagne? I'd offer you some, but I understand that you don't drink. Vimes glanced at the brimming whisky glass beside him. We were just checking, said Madame, hauling a large bottle out of an industrial capacity ice bucket. You're not a sergeant. Rosie was right. You've been an officer. More than just any old officer, too. You're so composed, Sergeant Keel. Here you are, in a big house, in a lady's boudoir, with a woman of uneasy virtue. Madame upended the bottle into what appeared to be a blue mug with a teddy bear on it. And you appear... unfussed. Where are you from? You may smoke, by the way. Somewhere a long way off, said Vimes. Uberwelt? No. I have... business interests in Uberwelt, said Madame. Alas, the situation there is becoming quite unstable. Right, I see, said Vimes. And you'd like to have the significant Paul's type of business interests in Ankh-Morpork, I expect, if it can be stabilised. Very good. Let us say that I think this city has a wonderful future, and that I would like to be part of it, and that you are remarkably perspicacious. No, said Vimes. I'm very simple. I just know how things work. I just follow the money. Winder is a madman, and that's not good for business. His cronies are criminals, but that's not good for business. A new patrician will need new friends, far-sighted people who want to be part of a wonderful future, one that's good for business. That's how it goes. Meetings in rooms, a little diplomacy, a little give and take, a promise here, an understanding there. That's how real revolutions happen. All that stuff in the streets is just froth. Vimes nodded to the door. Guests for a late supper? That was Dr Follett's voice. A clever man they used to... They call him. He'll pick the right side. If you've got the big guilds with you, Winder is a dead man walking. But Snapcase won't do you much good. Many people have great hopes of him. What do you think? I think he's a scheming, self-serving fool. But he's the best there is at the moment. And where do you come in, Sergeant? Me? I'm staying outside. You've got nothing that I want. You don't want anything? I want lots of things, my lady, but you can't give them to me. How would you like to be back in command? The question hit him like a hammer. This was history. She couldn't know. How could she know? Ah, said Madame, who had watched his expression. Rosemary did say thieves took some very expensive armour off you. Fit for a general, I hear. She glanced at Vimes as she opened another bottle. Properly, too, Vimes noticed, through the shock. None of that amateur business with rocketing corks and wasted bubbles. "'Wouldn't that be strange if it was true?' Madame mused. "'A street-fighting man with the manner of a commander and the breastplate of a leader.' Vimes stared straight ahead. "'And who needs to know how he got here?' said Madame to the air in general. "'We could take the view that here at last is a man who could truly take command of the city watch.' The first thought that fizzed in Vimes's head like champagne was, bloody hell, I could do it. Chuck swing out on his ass, promote some decent sergeants. The second thought was, in this city, under snap case, now, we'd be just another gang. The third thought was, this is insane, it can't happen, it never did happen, you want to go home to Sybil. Thoughts one and two shuffled out of the way, feeling ashamed of themselves and mumbling, yeah, right, Sybil, yeah, obviously, yeah, right, sorry, <clears throat> "'until they faded into silence. "'I've always had a talent for seeing promise,' said Madame, 
while he still stared at nothing. The fourth thought rose in the darkness like some ugly creature from the abyss. "'You didn't think about Sybil until thought three, it whispered. He blinked. "'You know the city needs,' Madame began. "'I want to go home,' said Vimes. "'I'm going to finish the job that's in front of me, and then I'm going home. That's what I'm going to do.' "'There are those that would say that if you are not for us, you're against us,' said Madame. "'For you? For what? For anything? No. But I'm not for Winder either. I'm not supposed to be for people, and I don't take bribes, not even if Sandra threatens me with a toadstool. I believe it was a mushroom. Oh, dear.' The lady gave him a smile. "'You are incorruptible.' "'Oh, dear, here we go again,' thought Vimes. Why did I wait until I was married to become strangely attractive to powerful women? Why didn't it happen to me when I was sixteen? I could have done with it then. He tried to glare, but that probably only made it worse. I've met a few incorruptible men, said Madame Meserelle. They tend to die horrible deaths. The world balances out, you see. A corrupt man in a good world, or a good man in a corrupt one. The equation comes out the same way. The world does not deal well with those who don't pick a side. "'I like the middle,' said Fimes. "'That gives you two enemies. "'I'm amazed that you can afford so many on a sergeant's pay. "'Please think of what you could be giving up.' "'I am, and I'm not going to help people to die "'just to replace one fool with another.' "'Then there is your door behind you, sergeant. "'I am very sorry we could not do business,' said Fimes. "'I was going to say reach a mutually beneficial agreement.' "'We are not very far from your watch-house. "'I wish you luck.' "'She nodded towards the door. "'Such a shame,' she said, and sighed. "'Vimes stepped out into the rainy night "'and shifted his weight from foot to foot "'and then took a few experimental steps. "'Corner of easy and treacle mine, "'a mix of flat-top cobbles and old bricks. "'Yeah!' "'He went home.' Madame stared at the closed door for a while and then turned as the candles flickered slightly. "'You really are very good,' she said. "'How long have you been here?' Havelock Fetinari stepped out of the shadow in the corner. He wasn't wearing official assassin's black, but loose clothes that were no real colour at all, just nondescript shades of grey. "'I've been here quite long enough,' he said, sprawling into the chair that Vimes had vacated. "'Not even the aunts noticed you?' People look, but don't see. The trick is to help them see nothing. But I think Vimes would have seen me if I hadn't been over here. He stares into shadows. Interesting. He is a very angry man, said Madame. You just made him angrier. I believe you'll get your diversion, said Madame. Yes, I believe so too. Madame leaned over and patted him on the knee. There, she said, your auntie thinks of everything. She stood up. "'I'd better go and entertain my guests. "'I am a very entertaining person. "'By tomorrow night, Lord Winder will not have many friends.' "'She drained her mug of champagne. "'Dr. Follett is such a charming man, don't you think? "'Is that his own hair, do you know?' "'I have not sought the opportunity to find out,' said Havelock. "'Is he trying to get you drunk?' "'Yes,' said Madame. "'You have to admire him. "'They say he can play a mean lute.' said Havelock. Fascinating, said Madame. She set her face into a genuine smile of pleasure and opened the big double doors at the other end of the room. 
Ah, doctor, she said, stepping into the haze of smoke. A little more champagne. Vimes slept in a corner standing up. It was an old trick shared by night watchmen and horses. It wasn't exactly sleep. You'd die if you tried to keep it up for more than a few nights, but it took some of the tiredness away. A few of the other men had already mastered the trick. Others made use of tables or benches. No one seemed inclined to go home, even when a sort of dawn suffused the rain and Snouty came in with a cauldron of fearsome porridge. Vimes opened his eyes. "'Mug of tea, Sarge,' said Snouty. "'Stewed for an hour and two sugars.' "'You're a lifesaver, Snouty,' said Vimes, clasping it like the elixir of life. "'And there's some kid outside who says he's got to speak to you. <laughs> "'Especially,' Snouty went on. "'Shall I give him a clip alongside the head?' "'What does he smell like?' said Vimes, sipping the scalding, corrosive tea. "'Bottom of a baboon's cage, Sarge.' "'Ah, Nobby Nobs. I'll go out and see him. "'Bring him a big bowl of porridge, will you?' "'Snouty looked uncomfortable about this. "'If you'll <laughs> take my advice, Sarge, "'it don't pay to encourage kids like... "'See these stripes, Snouty? "'Well done. A big bowl.' "'Vimes took his tea out into the damp yard, "'where Nobby was lurking against a wall.' There were hints that it was going to be a sunny day. That should bring things on after the overnight rain. The lilacs, for example. "'What's happening, Nobby?' Nobby waited a moment to see if a coin was forthcoming. "'Pretty bad everywhere, Sarge,' he said, giving up for now but remaining hopeful. "'A constable got killed in lobbied clout. Hit by a stone, people say. Someone got their ear cut off because of the fighting in Nap Hill. Cavalry charge, Sarge. Running fights everywhere. All the watchhouses got hit bad.' Vimes listened gloomily to the list. It was the usual bloody business. Angry, frightened people on both sides, all crushed up together. It could only get worse. Knapp Hill and Dolly Sisters sounded like war zones already. See the little angels rise up high. Anything happening, Cable Street, he said. Just a few people, said Nobby. A bit of shouting and running away, that sort of thing. Right, said Vimes. Even a mob wasn't that stupid. It was still only the kids and the hotheads and the drunks now. It'd get worse. You'd have to be really mad to attack the unmentionables. There's bad stuff happening everywhere, said Nobby. Except here, of course. We're well out of it. No, thought Vimes. It'll pivot on us in the end. Snouty emerged from the watchhouse's rear door, carrying a big bowl of porridge with a spoon stuck in it. Vimes nodded towards Nobby, and the bowl was handed over with extreme reluctance. Sarge, said Snouty, keeping his eye on the spoon as the boy ate, or more correctly, gobbled the stuff. Yes, Snouty. Have we got any orders? I don't know. Is the captain here? That's it, Sarge, said Snouty. A runner came last night with an envelope for the captain, and I took it up, and there was the captain waiting, so I thought, this is funny, ha <laughs> ha, and I thought, but he's not normally in this early. Faster, please, Snouty, said Vimes, as the man started to watch the oscillating spoon again. Well, when I took him up with cocoa later on, he was just sitting there, <laughs> staring right at nothing, and he said, Thank you, Snouty, when I give him the cocoa. <laughs> no, I always very polite in that <laughs> respect, but when I went up just now, he was gone. He's an old man, Snouty. You can't expect him to be here all thousands in old Sarge. He never took it home before and Vimes saw that Snouty's eyes were more red-rimmed than usual. He sighed. Any sign of the envelope? No, Sarge, said Snouty, glancing again at the spoon in Nobby's hand. It was a very cheap one, Vimes noted, made of some pot metal. In that case, we just keep the peace, Snouty, he said. Not a lot of that about, Sarge. 
We'll have to see what we can find. Come with me. Snouty looked reluctant. Just want to keep an eye on the spoon, Sarge. We've only got five left, and kids like that one will pinch the... He can keep that damn spoon, said Vimes. Spoons are not important at this point. Nobby downed the last scalding mouthful, stuck the spoon in his pocket, stuck out a porridge-laden tongue at Snouty, dropped the bowl on the ground and took to his heels. Vimes strode back into the office, picked up the porridge ladle and rattled it on the sides of the empty cauldron. Heads looked up. All right, my sons, this is what we're going to do. All married men have got permission to nip home for an hour to stop your wives fretting. The rest of you, you're on unpaid overtime. Anyone surprised? Wiglet raised a hand. We've all got family, Sarge, he said. And the best thing you can do for them is make sure there's a bit of law around the place, said Vimes. We don't know what's been happening in the other divisions, except that it sounds bad. So this house is staying open, understand? Day and night. Yes, Lance Constable. I'm on be worrying, Sarge, said young Sam. Vimes hesitated, but only for a moment. Snouty will limp out with any messages you have, lad. The same goes for everyone else, he said. We're going to go out and patrol soon. Yet yeah, I know we're night watch, so what? It's looking pretty black to me at the moment. Lance Constable, come out into the yard, will you? Vimes walked back out into the morning. In theory, one of the purposes of the yard was for training. It was seldom used for that. The night watch eschewed violence, as a rule. When threats or superior numbers had no effect, they preferred to run. There were some mouldering targets in the shed, along with some straw men for stabbing practice. Vimes tugged them out onto the cobbles as the Lance Constable appeared behind him. "'I thought you said these things were useless, Sarge.' "'They are,' said Vimes. "'I've put them here for you to land on.' You're walking around, Sam, with a weapon you don't know how to use. That's worse than walking around knowing how to use a weapon and not having one. A man with a weapon he doesn't know how to use is likely to have it shoved where the sun does not shine. He took off his breastplate and helmet and tossed his sword belt into a corner. All right, attack me, he said. Out of the corner of his eye, he saw that some of the men had wandered into the yard and were watching. I can't just stab you, Sarge, Sam wailed. No, but I'd like you to try. Sam hesitated again. I wasn't entirely stupid, Vimes thought. You're grinning, Sarge, said Sam. Well? You're just grinning and standing there, Sarge, said Sam. I know I'm going to get a hiding, because you haven't got a sword and you're grinning. Worried about getting blood on your nice sword, lad? All right, throw it away. Feel better? You were in a gang, right? Of course you were. Everyone was. You're still alive, so you must have learned how to fight. Yeah, Sarge, but that was, you know, dirty fighting. We're dirty people. Do your worst, said Vimes. I don't want to hurt you, Sarge. That's your first mistake. Sam spun and lashed out. Vimes stepped back, caught the foot and helped it on its journey upwards. I was quick too, he thought, as Sam landed flat on his back. And not too bad at cunning, but I've learned artful since then. It showed in your eyes, he said to the sprawling Sam. But you've got hold of the basic idea. There's no rules. He sensed the change behind him. It included the very muffled sound of a chuckle. He glanced back at Sam, who was looking past him. The blow was a neat one, to the back of where the head would have been if Vimes hadn't stepped smartly sideways. As it was, he turned and grabbed the arm and looked into the face of Ned Coates. "'Nice day off, Ned?' he said. "'Yes, Sarge, thank you. Just wanted to see how good you were.' He elbowed Vimes in the stomach and twisted away. There was some murmuring from the watchers, but Vimes, bent double and with tears running from his eyes, raised a hand. No, that's fair enough, fair enough, he panted. We've all got something to learn. 
He put his hands on his knees, wheezing a little more theatrically than he needed to. He was impressed that Ned wasn't falling for it. The man kept his distance, circling slowly. He was holding his truncheon. A less experienced fighter would have come to check that old Sarge was all right and would have suffered for it. "'That's right, Sarge,' said Ned. "'I want to see what you can teach me. Sam's too trusting.' Vimes's mind riffled desperately through options. "'So, Sarge,' said Ned, still moving, "'what would you do, Sarge, if you were unarmed "'and a man came at you with a truncheon?' "'Get armed quick,' thought Vimes, "'if I thought he was as good as you.' "'He ducked and rolled. Ned missed that. "'When Vimes started to move right, "'he'd concentrated on the left, "'on the basis that from someone like Vimes "'the first move would have to be a feint. "'By the time he caught himself and turned, "'Vimes had grabbed his scabbard and was rising, "'sword sliding out. "'Ah, raising the stakes, good lesson, Sarge,' said Ned. He drew his own sword. It gleamed. Most of the watch swords would have had difficulty cutting butter. Now we're level again. What next, Sarge? They circled. Blimey, thought Vimes, who taught him? And he's grinning, and no wonder. This isn't a contest. He knows I can't cut him, not like this, not in front of everyone. He can accidentally get me and get away with it. But a sergeant's supposed to know better. And we can't raise the stakes any higher. Hold on. He hurled the sword at the wall. It stuck in by sheer luck. That impressed the watchers. "'Got to give you a chance, Ned,' he said, moving away. "'You can always learn,' Vimes thought. He remembered Gussie two grins. Sam wouldn't run into him for five years or so. It would be a real education. Two grins was the dirtiest fighter Vimes had ever met. Anything was a weapon. Anything was a target. Two grins was a kind of genius in that limited area. He could see the weapon in anything, a wall, a cloth, a piece of fruit. He wasn't even a big man. He was small and wiry.' but he liked fighting big men on the basis that there was more of them to bite. After a few drinks, though, it was hard to know what two grins was fighting. He'd fight the man next to him simply as a substitute for kneeing the whole universe in the groin. He'd been called two grins ever since someone glassed him in the face. Gussie had been so marinated in adrenaline at that point that he regarded this as a mere detail. The scar had left a happy, smiley face. Sam had learned a lot from Gussie two grins. "'What's this about?' he murmured, just loud enough for Ned to hear. "'Just want to find out what you know, Sarge,' said Ned, still circling. "'Seems to me you know too much.' He lunged. Vimes darted back, flailed with the scabbard like a man with no hope, and as Ned laughed and leaned out of his way, shifted his grip on the stiff leather. "'I've got the helmet on, as per regulations,' said Ned. "'And the armour. Hard to punch me out, Sarge.' Even with detritus yelling at them, not one watchman in seven really used a sword properly. Ned did. There weren't many openings.' End of CD 6